We may never find out what happened with the COVID-sniffing dogs, but we will go over everything else that happened in the Atlanta race weekend here on Lapping the Field. Hello and welcome to Lapping the Field. I am your host, Eric Beck. A lot of explosive things happening this weekend at Atlanta, especially in the lower series. But I'm going to go ahead and start off talking about the NASCAR weekend this past weekend at Atlanta with the cup side. going to talk about the goings-on that happened over there. I want to start off acknowledging that this uh, this past weekend was 20 years since Kevin Harvick won at Atlanta, uh, three weeks after the tragic death of Dale Earnhardt Sr., uh, Harvick coming in at that point into the team that used to be Dale Earnhardt Seniors and winning in just his third race as a uh, as a Cup Series driver. As it happens, this past weekend Harvick was uh, slated to be the favorite by a lot of people, but unfortunately for him, the weekend did not yield a similar result to what he saw even last year, but definitely not what he saw 20 years ago. Harvick had some early troubles, had a flat tire coming off of that uh, that first uh, caution and restart there on after the competition caution. He was able to stand the lead lap for a little while because he pitted on that restart lap and was able to get back out and get up to speed before the leaders caught back up to him. Uh, but unfortunately for him, he did end up going a lap down and had to fight his way back, uh, had to had to do a lot of fighting during the rest of the race with how early that happened in the race. Um, other than that, there weren't a ton of uh, issues in the cup race. There were uh, there were a few uh, incidents, though. The the two, the Brad Keselowski's car, got into the back of the 19 at one point, and that probably contributed to Keselowski having not as good of a finish as he would have liked. Uh, other things that happened, Kurt Busch, at the start of Stage 2, got spun off of the restart by Denny Hamlin. It was a. Uh, it was unfortunate to say the least. It was also accidental. It was a the a case of uh, case of Kurt's brother Kyle not getting as good of a jump on the restart as he would have liked, and things stacking up behind him. Other things that happened: Chase Elliott having a, having an engine go up and smoke on him there in stage two as well. And in the uh, the final pitting pitting sequence of the race, the 38 car uh, piloted by Anthony Alfredo spun on pit road, very nearly caused a very serious incident with the crew members for the car that was pitting in front of him. Very nearly a disastrous accident. Luckily, though, disaster was avoided. That was not the only incident that happened on pit road, but we are going to stick with the, the cup race on this side. And the other incident, of course, happened in the Xfinity race. So those are the uh, those are the major incidents. It was largely an incident-free race, largely a green flag run race. Uh, a couple of guys that I noted during the race who were having some good runs who uh, maybe aren't typically seen up at the front of the field. Matt DiBenedetto, Matty D, I saw that he was having a good stage two. He was maybe falling off a little bit during some of those longer runs. Uh, finished sixth during stage two, ultimately ended up finishing 11th at the end of the race, but a pretty good showing for Matthew Matty DiBenedetto, uh, which, whichever name for him you want to use. Uh, another guy had a great race who maybe you wouldn't expect, or at least had a great part of the, his race, Daniel Suarez. Great run with a new team coming into the series. He uh, finished 10th in stage two, was up there challenging for uh, some positions there, led a lap earlier in the race. But unfortunately for him, he had a very costly speeding penalty in his last pit stop. Had to come through, do a, do a drive-through penalty. Ended up finishing 17th. Another name here, uh, Chris Busher. 
Chris Buescher had an even better race than the previous two guys here. Ninth in stage one, eighth in stage two, finished in seventh. Uh, banking our, or, uh, trying to bank up some good finishes here, Chris Buescher is with his uh, Roush Fenway team. We uh, we noted his uh, his stage win at Homestead a couple weeks ago. Maybe this is a, a sign of things to come for Chris Buescher here this season if he's able to keep uh, racking up these uh, top ten finishes. Uh, another guy I want to talk about here, Kyle Busch. We had some uh, some questions last week about how Kyle Busch was doing. Uh, he put some of those questions to bed early in the race weekend with the only time that we are going to talk about the Truck Series race in this episode of the podcast. And I can sum up the Truck Series race in three words. Kyle Busch won. <laughs> it's, there's not a whole lot else I think that there is to say about the truck series race and Kyle Busch putting to bed some of those questions about his speed there in that truck series race with, race with his 60th truck series win and then coming into the cup race on Sunday let's take a look here he had a very fast car was up at the front for a majority of the race great day on Sunday finished second in stage one fourth in stage two and then ultimately finished fifth in the race but the two best drivers of the day by far were Kyle Larson and Ryan Blaney. Larson was dominant in this race. He uh, ended up winning the first two stages, but was not able to hang on there at the end. Let's take a look here. Kyle Larson on the uh, the long runs, what he would tend to do is he would build up a... Um, a larger lead at the start, try and put as much space as he could between himself and the second place car. And then you would kind of start to see him fade a little bit towards the end of the of the longer green flag runs, which this race ended up being a majority of green flag runs. So it wasn't an issue until it was an issue. And ultimately, ultimately it was an issue after that very long green flag run to end the race. Um, once again, his uh, his strategy there was to build up a big lead there at the start of the run, which is what he did in that last run. But it got to be costly, like I said, after a much longer run than they had seen before. He wasn't able to hold off that late charge from Ryan Blaney, who did do a good job there on his last restart of getting up to the front, but had an issue with uh, some debris there on the front of his grill, and he had to try and get that cleared off, which is why he surrendered the lead at that point. But he was able to come back. He made that pass with eight to go, was able to hang on there and finish with a win in this race here at Atlanta. Blaney's fifth career win. Uh, Larson, it would have been, or there were questions about how uh, how Larson would react to this after having such a dominant race car there for about 300 laps in this 325-lap uh, event and how, uh, how disappointed he would be in this. Obviously, you're disappointed to lose a race at any point, but having already won a race this season, he is still in pretty good shape moving forward, and he certainly at this point looks like he has a lot of, uh, a lot of gas left in the tank, as it were, going forward now that we're only six races into this 36-race season. Looks like Larson is still going to have himself a good car moving forward. Um... Let's take a look here at other things. I do want to uh, go through a couple of different talking points, things to take away from this race, and we'll stick with the uh, the Larson and Blaney battle there at the end of the race for our first talking point here. On the TV broadcast, after Blaney got past Larson, they went into the went into Kyle Larson's audio from his radio. They played an audio clip where Kyle Larson said, "I hate Joey Logano." 
he said it with a, a little more tired voice than what I just used, but I think that's a result of running 500 miles in Atlanta. Now, Logano was the last car in the lead lap. He was ahead of Larson for a decent amount of time, decent number of laps, before Blaney was able to catch Larson and pass him. There's been some discussion about this in the aftermath of the race, uh, people saying Logano wasn't doing anything wrong and that Larson didn't really ever seem to be in a place where he was able to catch and pass Logano to put Logano a lap down and then continue on with his race. And all that is true. I just think it's an example of someone who's frustrated right at the end of a race who just couldn't quite hold on and who was probably sitting there lap after lap wishing that he could catch Logano and put him a lap down or that Logano would just allow him to pass. Ultimately, I think that's where his frustration came in is that right after Blaney passed Larson for the lead, he was able to put Logano a lap down and then Larson was able to get past Logano at that point. That's a situation where maybe it's a thing of uh, a teammate giving another teammate a break there with Logano and Blaney being teammates and uh, Logano not feeling any reason to get get uh, get out of the way for Larson. But like I said, and like a lot of people have said, Larson didn't seem to be in any, uh, any hurry there. It didn't look like he had what it took to catch up to Logano at that point. So... The, the ultimate point of this is I just, I loved the soundbite. I thought I enjoyed it a lot as the race was coming to a close there. I think, I think that was a great for TV moment. Point number two, the track itself, especially on restarts. This is a track that is uh, notorious for eating tires, uh, slowing cars down over time. That uh, is part of the problem with what happened with Larson there. This weekend that came with an additional issue for drivers on restarts. Looking at highlights from the truck and Xfinity races and with watching the entire Cup Series race, the top lane on restarts just couldn't seem to ever get going at the same pace that the bottom lane was able to. Uh, whether that's just uh, whether it's just that much harder to get going up there or drivers spinning the tires on the restart, trying to stay at pace with the control car, it was a constant issue, and uh, including the Kurt Busch wreck which was started in part, like we said before, with Kyle Busch not being able to get going up there in that top lane at the start of Stage 2. This is one where they're talking about repaving the track, which will be inevitable. I mean, at some point you're going to need to repave the track just because this thing is 24 years old, if I'm remembering correctly, the track surface. But it sounds like when they repaved it in the past, it got back to this point of just tearing and grating at tires. Um pretty early in the life of this track so we'll have to see i guess whether they end up repaving this track or when they end up repaving this track and uh, we'll see what sort of a fix it is for this or whether this is just going to end up being an atlanta thing it is notable on a tire front though that uh, after that specific restart the one with the kurt bush accident it immediately brought out a caution, which was the first lap of the run, and everyone went back in to get tires because that is how important tires are at Atlanta. We did see some tire wear. They showed some tire wear in the broadcast with uh, tires that came off of vehicles, but it didn't seem like, other than the Kevin Harvick flat tire uh, right before the start of that uh, second run, it didn't seem like there were tires actually coming apart. There didn't seem to be any blown tires or anything like that, and there were no cautions for... Uh, someone blowing a tire and then hit running into the wall. So it's an interesting point, I guess. It's a thing to monitor with uh, with continuing forward in Atlanta. And of course, we're going to have a, a second Atlanta race coming up later this season. So we'll have to wait and see what else happens uh, moving forward. For the final point here, I want to go back to some of the speed issues we talked about with some teams. 
revisiting our our discussion from last week about Stuart Haas racing. Many people coming into Atlanta, like I said at the start of this, were expecting Kevin Harvick to rebound, many people picking him to win, but that team in particular and Stuart Haas in general saw more issues. Now, Harvick did end up finishing 10th after battling back from that flat tire issue we've already touched on, but he did notably say at one point that the car was, his words, the biggest piece of crap he'd ever driven at Atlanta. Also notable are the finishing positions for the other Stuart Haas drivers, Cole Custer in 18th, Eric Almarola in 20th, and Chase Briscoe in 23rd, and no stage points for any of the drivers, Custer, Almarola, Briscoe, or Harvick. No stage points for any of those drivers, meaning you weren't seeing them running up front at all on Sunday. This is a thing where I said last week that you're waiting to see more results to see where this team is at. And I think we're just at the start of saying that there are some issues with the Stuart Haas cars. I think we're just at the start of that. I think it's safe to say that both car and driver are playing a role in these issues right now. We talked last week about those two younger drivers you have there. And then uh, Eric Almarola, who I heard described this week as a journeyman, which is probably a better word than whatever I used to describe him a week ago. So you've got those three there. So you've got questions about the car. You've got questions about uh, the driver. And it's of course, it's going to vary from driver to driver. So at this point, I'm not going to put a percentage or a ratio on how much is this the car's fault and how much is this the driver's fault. I think we're still going to have to wait and see a few more weeks to try and determine that. But I think it's safe to say that Stuart Haas has some, uh, some questions about their cars that are becoming more and more red flags. Uh, with that said, I heard a point made earlier this week, or uh, maybe a little more of a hypothetical, about how much effort do you put into the car this year if you're Stuart Haas racing. There are reports that uh, Stuart Haas is having some issues meeting some NASCAR, some new uh, inspection requirements on the back end of the car, which is an issue you would want to focus on and you probably should be focusing on this year. But at the same time, NASCAR's in the middle of developing a new car, which they're going to roll out next year for all teams. So the question for Stuart Haas right now is, how much time and effort do you put into the car for this year? And when do you fully shift focus to 2022 and the next gen car? I think right now you're obviously already starting to develop the next gen car as a team. So there's already a bit of focus there. But I think if you want to give your drivers the right sort of momentum going into next season, you need to wait a pretty considerable amount of time before shifting focus away from this season. Uh, I think uh, the point I heard, which I at least initially agree with, is that you're doing what you can with this car until the playoff field really takes shape. And you can get a feel for your competitiveness there and get a feel for whether you're going to be in or out going into the playoffs. But I think it's fair to say that you can't make your way to the front now, and if you can't do that now, you won't have a chance at doing that later this year. So if you're not focusing on the car now, you're already kind of setting yourself up to not focus on the car in the future. So moving forward, I think this is going to vary team by team within Stuart Haas. You're definitely expecting to see Kevin Harvick continue to do well, especially coming off of that nine-win season last year, and uh, hoping, I guess, to push him to some better success this season. And then I guess we'll uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens with them moving forward and moving into next year. The last thing on team speed I want to touch on before we move on, I want to put a pin here in the results we've seen from Chase Elliott. Now, I don't think this is anywhere close to being on par with the Stuart Haas issues, 
and we have seen some good runs out of Chase this year, most notably second at Daytona, finished fifth at Phoenix last week. That said, there have been times over the last couple weeks it seemed like Chase has the fourth best car at Hendrick. It's like the fourth best Hendrick Motorsports car on the track. And this is a hard thing to point to as the entire Hendrick team is doing really well right now. And we don't know how Chase might have done this weekend in a finish since he did blow that engine there in stage two. But even before that happened, he finished eighth in stage two, which is good uh, on its own. But it was the, th uh, the third best finish out of the Hendrick cars that stage. And again, it's just a bit of perception on my end that uh, the other Hendrick teams seem to be running better, especially with the dominance we've been seeing from Kyle Larson at these past couple races and uh, this past Sunday with uh, that 300-lap ultimate dominance. He didn't quite lead 300 laps, but he was definitely dominant for that much time. And a sneaky third-place finish from Alex Bowman this past weekend. I didn't know that until I was looking at the results coming, uh, coming in to record this, that Bowman finished third. So I'm not saying that it's a major concern or even necessarily a concern at all, but maybe something to monitor moving forward. And maybe ultimately we come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to pull this pin out, uh, or at some point later in the season, we'll pull this pin out. We'll throw it away. We will forget that we ever talked about this. And uh, maybe we come back and say maybe there is something going on where uh, – the Chase LA team isn't doing as well as the other three teams at Hendrick uh, as we go through the season. It is, of course, worthy to note that Chase really came on at the end of last year during uh, his championship run and was able to pull out that championship kind of as an underdog because he didn't have the performance throughout the season and again sort of built up to that championship performance at the end of the season. Anyways, we'll be moving on here. We're going to go ahead and uh, move from this race specifically to take a look at the cup standings. Now that we're six races in and we have six different winners. First time in a little bit of time. If I remember correctly, it's 2014 is the last time we had six different winners. I personally am rooting for as many different winners as possible this season. Apparently... In 2000, so 21 years ago now, in 2000, we had 10 different winners in the first 10 races. So I personally, again, am hoping for as many different winners as possible to make this season as interesting as possible. So with uh, with his win, Blaney automatically makes his way up to the top of the board or up towards the top of the board. Uh, Logano and Keselowski flip. Harvick and Elliott flip. Kurt Busch took a bit of a drop after that wreck. And uh, we're seeing a switch at the bottom of the, the playoff standings here with uh, the two JTG Doherty cars, uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Ryan Priest dropping below the cut line, and Alex Bowman and Chris Buescher making their way up the board. Now, while, while we're talking about this, I, I did have this realization last week that I don't know who may or may not be watching this in the future, so I do want to touch on how the point standings work and because points standings are not necessarily the same way that other sports uh, have their standings compiled. So if you're unfamiliar with the points-based system, I think it's going to be worth at least going over a little bit of this here. Even if you are familiar with the points-based system, I did not fully understand everything, and maybe I still don't, but I did not fully understand everything until I started to put together some of how the system works going into this discussion. Because uh, since the start of me watching this 20, 20, however many years ago, this point system has changed over uh, at least three or four times, I think, at this point. 
So now it has been stable at least since 2017 or so. So let's go ahead and go over now what, what, how this point system works. So points roughly correlate to where you finish in a race. And I say roughly because there is more to it than that. But let's go ahead and start there with that distinction. Depending on where you finish, you are awarded a certain number of points. Under the current system, the winner receives 40 points. Second place receives 35 points. And then the number decreases by one point for every position after that. So second gets 35, like I said. Then third gets 34. Fourth gets 33, etc., etc., until you get down to one point, which is awarded to anyone finishing 36th to 40th. And there's that uh, that number, or the reason that 36th to 40th all get the same number of points is because of that gap between first and second, that five-point gap. So that is the bare-bones basics of how points are awarded, and that is at the end of each race. On top of that... NASCAR right now is using a system which we call stage racing. So throughout the race, there are basically two mini races that finish at different parts of the race. So when I've referred to different parts of the race as stage one or stage two, this is what I've been talking about. These sections are marked at the race by a green and white checkered flag. So at the end of stage one, the green and white checkered flag comes out. At the end of stage two, the green and white checkered flag comes out. And then at the end of stage three, which typically isn't called stage three, it's typically just called the final stage. So at the end of the race, it's the black and white checkered flag that is typical for what you've seen for decades and decades in motorsports. So based on where you finish in each stage, not just not just at the end of the race, but based on where you finish in each stage, you can also be awarded points that go to your total for the race. The points for stages only count for the top 10 finishers. So this is where things start to get a little more convoluted, where we're going to have to start uh, working a little harder to keep track of the point system. So top 10 finishers in each stage get points. First place gets 10 points, and then the points go down by one until 10th place, which gets one point. So first gets 10 second gets nine, et cetera, et cetera, down to 10th place gets one point. So if you were to win stage one and win stage two and then win the race, that would be 60 points. And then depending on where people finish below that, that is how many points they get. And that goes into the season total, which is how the standings are determined and help to go towards determining who the winner is. So just with this much in mind, with this much of the, uh, the the point system discussed, let's go ahead and take a look at the top 10 finishers from this past week and the points that they earned throughout the race to try and continue to understand how this works. So starting with our winner, Ryan Blaney, he had a third place finish in stage one, a second in stage two, and then won the race. So with those three positions throughout the race, Ryan Blaney earned 57 points for this race, which goes, all of that goes towards his season total. For winning stage one and stage two and then finishing second in the race, Kyle Larson got 55 points for the race. The important, the important point here, and the reason it's better to have a car that is good throughout the race, is that drivers can finish the race behind someone, but score more points than that person. So for example, 
we see that Kyle Busch finished behind Denny Hamlin. Kyle Busch finished fifth. Denny Hamlin finished fourth. But Kyle Busch earned seven more points than Denny Hamlin. He also even earned one more point than Alex Bowman, who finished in third. So Kyle Busch finished fifth. Bowman finished third. But Kyle Busch was better throughout the race and had better position finishes in each of those stages. So he was able to earn more points than, uh, than the two drivers in front of him. Now... This explanation does not cover all of the intricacies of the point system, but I do hope it serves as a good introduction to how the system works, and we will hopefully have plenty of time to learn more about the other aspect of aspects, the plural aspects of the point system. Uh, but we have a couple other things to discuss here before we wrap up. So after a quick break, we'll come back and talk about some controversies uh, from the Xfinity race. Take a look, and we will also take a look ahead, that is, at next week's race at Bristol here on Lapping the Field. Hey, everyone. This is the point in most podcasts where you would maybe expect to hear an ad read, a Patreon plug, or something of that nature. While that may be something that ends up being integrated into this podcast in the future, I'm more concerned at the moment with getting this podcast up and running. So, no ads, no Patreon, but if you do want to find out more about this podcast or any other project I'm involved in, head over to ericbeckmedia.com. That's ericbeckmedia, all one word, dot com. Now back to the show. All right, we're back. And after saying last week that we'd be focusing on the Cup Series, we saw some fireworks come out in the Xfinity Series that I want to discuss. So we will go ahead and talk about one of these lower premier series here on the podcast. Two items to talk about from the Xfinity Series race, or at least two items that I'm going to talk about. And we'll start with the biggest bang, the number the infield grass did on Josh Berry's car. So, final stage of the Xfinity Series race, Josh Berry spins coming out of turn four, saves the car, and as he's trying to get back onto the track, he finds his way through the infield grass, or maybe more appropriately, the grass finds its way through his car. Now, with the way these cars are designed, the car rides as low to the ground as possible so that a bunch of air doesn't get under the car and either slow it down or cause it to flip more easily, or any other reason that you don't want air under those cars. So this is fine when you're on the track. This is less fine when you hit the grass, and the grass is higher than the track. The result in this instance was that Josh Berry's car ended up looking like it was ready to take off, two wheels getting launched into the air after the nose dug into the grass. So it was quite the sight to see. If you haven't seen the video of this, I will try to put a link in the show notes for those of you on YouTube that is directly below the video. For those of you listening on podcast, take a look at the show notes that go along with this episode of the podcast. Uh, the question that came out of this, or maybe the concern, is what grass can do to these cars? Because this isn't the first time this has happened. There seem to be two prevailing viewpoints coming out of this incident. Number one, use artificial turf instead of grass. Or, number two, you should be penalized for going off track and into the grass, and this is just what happens. Personally, I hate seeing cars get destroyed when they go down through the grass, especially when a driver finds themselves in the grass through no fault of their own. Especially, on top of that, when there is already such a high barrier of entry into the sport due to the cost of cars, and also considering the focus on driver safety. The grass is there. 
it should be said, as a safety element in and of itself, at least in part. Uh, it slows the cars down as they're spinning or if any of that thing is, any of those things are happening, rather than just having a fully paved everything and the cars driving through there. There are some other reasons that the grass is there, but this is one of one of the reasons why grass is there. But when we get see when we see cars get launched like we saw this weekend, that's a problem for me. So if the turf works just as well, let's go ahead, I would say, and switch to turf, especially at these tracks where we see this be an issue. This probably isn't a thing you're going to be seeing at road courses, but this probably is a thing that you could be seeing at these mile and a halfs. Uh, again, you're probably not seeing this at short tracks either because there's not going to be a ton of grass in those places. So it's not like, uh, I think touching on the argument that there should be penalties for going into the grass, just sort of through a natural penalty, not through a NASCAR giving a penalty. I don't think that driving on turf is going to be a positive. I think driving on turf is still going to be a detrimental. If you end up down in the grass or down in the turf, that's still going to be a bad time for you. Uh, the difference, I think, would be that you're not going to see these these incidents where cars are just tearing up themselves and the grass uh, going through the grass. You're still going to get that natural penalty, I think, if you end up on turf. But by far, the thing that most people have been talking about concerning this weekend, coming out of this weekend, and definitely the lead that I have buried in this podcast episode is the... Uh, the swinging match, I guess we'll call it a fight, but it was a swinging match between Noah Gregson and Daniel Hemrick after the Xfinity race. So for background, for those of you who are not aware of the incident, during the race, Daniel Hemrick and Noah Gregson were in adjacent pit stalls. Gregson was ahead of Hemrick in their pit stall assignments, and they were pitting at the same time. Hemrick had to make a move around another car and overshot his box, ending up partially in Gregson's box, which caused Gregson to miss his box. So in trying to get righted, Gregson backed into Hemrick's car while the crew was servicing the car, and then apparently after he got situated, flipped the bird to Hemrick, which led to the post-race altercation. So let's start with the pit stop portion of this. I've seen the replay, I've seen numerous angles of the replay, and again, video is going to be in the show notes, so if you haven't seen it, go ahead and uh, check for it down there. And after seeing the video and hearing the discussion about it, I personally believe that while Gregson may not have intended to hit Hemrick's car, he certainly didn't seem to care whether he did or not. This is a problem not just because it tore a hole in the front of Hemrick's car, but because crew members had to jump out of the way of the contact. Now Gregson wasn't fully in his pit box and needed to get at least three tires into the box in order to get service and not be penalized by NASCAR, which is why he backed up in the first place. But it was pointed out that the stall in front of him was empty, so he could have pulled forward and then backed up, which is how Hemrick ended up getting into his pit stall before Gregson got there, rather than backing up and backing into, into uh, Hemrick's car and then pulling forward. Gregson has also said he needed to back up as far as he did in order to maneuver into his box. Watching the video, I don't believe that. I think Gregson could have backed up and not hit Hemrick's car and still made his may, maneuvered his way into his pit stall just fine. But 
ultimately, I think the response that has happened both uh, from the fans and from Daniel Hemrick on the day, I think a lot of this comes down to the image that either has been built by Noah Gregson or has been built around Noah Gregson. I admittedly don't watch a ton of Xfinity racing, mostly because of broadcast availability. But the one thing I do know about Noah Gregson is that he's found himself in numerous situations with some similarity to this one over the last two seasons. That is, he's been dropping the gloves a fair number of times. So I think this may be a case where some level of grace given to him by other drivers is coming in shorter and shorter supply, and people are finding themselves more in a position to get angrier faster than they would with other drivers than they do with Noah Gregson. This, of course, leads us up to the fight that happened after the race on pit road. I don't think this was handled well by Hemrick. Uh, he came in during a media interview with Gregson. I believe it was the uh, the PRN radio interview at the end of the race. Uh, Gregson got in, uh, came in there during the middle of the interview. So I don't think that was maybe the best move. At the same time, if you're planning on going in there and getting physical, you're not going to walk up, wait for the interview to stop, and then get physical after the fact. So, on the other side of this is Noah Gregson, who, after the fight was over, I don't remember whether, or I don't know, I should say, whether it was during the same interview or whether it was during the TV interview after that. Gregson Gregson made some comments after the fact, which took a shot at Hemrick and his career success, uh, which I also believe were uncalled for. I think... At the end of the day, even with uh, no penalties being handed down by NASCAR for the incident, you're looking at two drivers who have egg on their face now, and that might be a little more detrimental to one of them than to the other one. So moving forward, I guess we'll just have to monitor the situation, see if we get any other fireworks between these two drivers in particular, or if anything else is going to happen with Noah Gregson in the future. So I have been trying to keep this episode a little shorter. I believe it was this episode or this podcast, which almost went for an hour last time, which will happen from time to time. But I will try to keep this shorter than uh, an Atlanta race length. So we're going to cut things off maybe a little sooner than I would like, but uh, hopefully soon enough to where you're able to listen to this entire episode. And thank you again for listening. So we will move from these talking points, the talking points we have about Atlanta, and talk about uh, talk about what is happening this coming weekend. So wrapping up here, take a brief look ahead to the Cup Series returning to a dirt track for the first time since 1970. 51 years since the Cup has run on dirt. And it is going to be something to see. The one word I've probably heard most associated with this race is spectacle. So this, if nothing else, is going to be a very interesting race. And I think there's a very good chance of having a lot of eyeballs on this race as we see what happens. So these cars, it is definitely worth saying, are not designed to drive on dirt. I think a lot of these drivers here have very little experience on dirt. And Bristol isn't a dirt track. That's probably my biggest bone of contention uh, going into this race. I have no issue doing something different. I was excited to hear that they were going to be going to a dirt track when that uh, when that news was announced last season uh, as they were developing the schedule. But you couldn't find an actual dirt track to use? I mean, how many dirt tracks are there in this country and you had to cover an asphalt track with dirt to do this? 
I, I don't understand that point. Even with, especially with the the freaking Xfinity series going to a dirt track later this season in Iowa. Even with one of your car team owners owning a dirt track and Tony Stewart at Eldora. A race that the trucks have run before. Now, I don't know if this is a distance issue. I don't know. I don't know if this is a what sort of an issue this is. But this is my biggest issue with this dirt race. So we're going to end up having to see what happens with this dirt, uh, this dirt situation on the track at Bristol. And part of this is, or part of the buildup to this is that a fair number of drivers have already been down to Bristol in recent weeks. We even saw guys like Kyle Busch get out of the truck, get on a plane and fly up to Bristol to run a race to try and see how the dirt is being run on Bristol, how how this is going to treat their cars. Now, obviously, they're not able to run in their uh, their cup cars right now. They've been running in some different some different vehicles, some different series to try and get a feel, at least, for how the dirt is reacting down there in Bristol. And on top of that, I do believe there will be some cup drivers who will be running in the truck series race uh, earlier in the weekend before they get in the cup car, again, trying to get as good of a feel as they can going into the race. So I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to try and keep this brief here. So I'm not going to go super in depth with some of the thoughts on what, what, what to watch for this weekend, but I will give you a couple of things. First, we're going to want to keep, uh, keep an eye on how the dirt keeps up, how the track itself keeps up and how are the cars going to keep up on the dirt? Will there be any issues with how low to the ground these cars run? It's one of those things that I'm interested to see whether we're going to have a whole lot of issues with bottoming out as these cars are running on the dirt. We're going to have to watch for this race where there's going to be no green flag pitting. They're not going to they're not going to pit under green. They're going to pit at stage breaks. I don't remember if they're pitting under yellow, but uh, you're not going to see live pit stops under green. Also, there are going to be some guys coming in, uh, some guys who are dirt specific drivers coming in to run this race specifically. We're going to have to see how well they do this weekend. We're going to have to see how well the cup drivers do, your standard typical cup drivers, some of whom are not truck or not uh, not dirt racers, excuse me. Some, some guys are not dirt racers. That's why you're seeing guys go down to practice on Bristol and try and uh, build up some experience moving into this. We're going to have to see who struggles from this and then who maybe is going to be moving into this, who we wouldn't expect to do well, but who is going to do well. I'm also kind of curious to see whether this is... Um, this sort of evens out the playing field in terms of your uh, your top level teams versus some of your mid tier teams, and see where where guys end up finishing as this race progresses. A final thing to look at here is the the qualifying system going into this race. Don't have a ton of time to talk about it right now, so we'll analyze it in a review next week. But the uh, the the race this weekend is going to be using more of a dirt track style of qualifying so you're not going to see guys running a single lap and uh, timing things out they're going to actually be qualifying races so we'll have to see how that ends up setting the field if that affects cars moving into the final or into the feature and uh i'm gonna just have to see i guess what happens with dirt at bristol and cup cars on dirt and i guess we'll see after this season if this is a thing that comes back into the cup series moving forward so with all of that said, all of those things that we've looked at, gonna gonna keep on keep on keeping on here, I guess. Uh, that's all I have for this week. My name is Eric Beck, and this has been Lapping the Field. Thanks for listening on podcast. Thanks for watching on YouTube. <laughs>